Open up to Acts chapter 3. We'll be there this morning. We are continuing our study of the book of Acts, where we are studying the early Christian community. And we're asking ourselves, what is uh, the mission of the church? Who is the church? What does the church do? What is its mission? What is its ministry? Uh, And and sort of the the overall summary uh, that we see in the book of Acts, and what I hope we really internalize and learn as a church, is that the church continues the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. Earth. We continue the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 2, which we just finished studying last week, has uh, pivotal, uh, epic changes that take place where the, the power and the presence of God comes on the disciples through the Holy Spirit and it transforms their Christian community and then that subsequently begins to transform the community around them. So I think we, we have to ask the question, what does that transformation bring? What, what happens when the gospel comes to bear in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit? And what I want you to see this morning is that it brings wholeness. It brings wholeness. That's the title of this morning's sermon. It's wholeness. We're going to start out by reading Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Please read along with me. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Simon's. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flowers fade. But not God's word. It stands forever. Let's give our attention to it. Uh, uh, The book, Band of Brothers, tells the story of Easy Company, the 2nd Battalion, the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment during World War II. Now, if you don't know what any of that means, that's okay. Neither do I. There may be a few military men back in here like Bailey and Richard who could tell us what all that means. Uh, but basically, it's, it's about a group of soldiers called Easy Company who were elite paratroopers during World War II, and they won or assisted in several de- decisive battles that helped us win that war. And one of the men of Easy Company was a man named Albert Blythe, and there's a really fascinating story about him. During one of the early battles, uh, Private Blythe mysteriously went blind. Just all of a sudden went blind. So they took him to the medic tent to keep him there. And after the 
after the battle was over, his, uh, his leader, Dick Winters, came to visit him to check him out. And the doctors told Winters that Blythe had gone blind from hysteria. He'd literally gone so hysterical in the middle of the war that he couldn't see. So Winters uh, went to Blythe and he looked him in the eye, even though he couldn't see him. He looked him directly in the eye and he said, listen, Albert, it's going to be okay. We're going to take you home. We're going to get you what you need and you're going to be fine. And then Winters turned around to walk off. When he walked off, something incredible happened. Blythe's eyesight returned in that very moment. And he stood up and he told the doctors, my eyesight's back. I'm going back into the battle. He continued serving in World War II where he won a Purple Heart. And then he went on to serve in Korea where he won a Silver and Bronze Star. So I tell you that story this morning because I think uh, Albert Blythe's story illustrates how wholeness comes through community. Wholeness comes through community. Uh, Counselors know this. Simply looking someone in the eye and listening to their story can bring healing to them. In the text we just read, uh, God miraculously uses Peter to bring wholeness to this lame man. And we're going to talk about that in detail here in a little bit. But, but I want to ask you this morning is, where do you need wholeness? Where has sin damaged your life in such a way as that you are looking at God and saying, I need you to make me whole? Is it a physical disability like this man? Is it a, a broken relationship? Is it a, a mental or spiritual darkness that you can't seem to escape? What is it? What I want you to see this morning is that wholeness comes through community, and it comes through a specific type of community. It comes through restorative community and repentant community. And we have a restorative and repentant community, then that brings revival. It brings refreshing in our own lives, and it brings revival in our communities. Okay, so uh, our three points this morning are restorative community, repentant community, and revival community. Kids, I want you to listen for a story about a game of repentance. Okay, a story about a game of repentance. All right, so first thing we're going to look at is this, this restorative community that we see here in this passage. All right, so let me ask you this. When you see someone in need, what do you do? especially someone who's poor. So you're driving down Highway 44, you exit, you, take one of the under, you, take one of, you go under one of the, the highway, you go in the underpass, you see a homeless person. What do you do? What does your heart and mind do in that moment? Well, Peter found themselves in a very similar situation. They, Peter and John, they're on their way to the temple, they're going to worship the Lord, and they pass by a man who is disabled, poor, and needy, and lame. This man went there every day, and he did what he always does. He asked them for alms. Alms is money given to the poor. Now, how did they respond? They did what most people wouldn't do. The text tells us that they gazed at him. They gazed at him. They, They fixed their gaze on him. They looked at him. 
right? They established a connection with him by making eye contact. They even said, hey, look at us. We're going to look at you. And it allowed them to see the lame man's need, and it allowed the lame man to see their compassion. The Bible often describes Jesus as looking at people before he heals them. He will, it'll say that he looked at them. It'll say he felt something for them. And then it will say that he healed them. Right? When, when Peter and John were looking at this man, and when Jesus looks at people who need to be healed, what do you think he's, what, do you, what is he thinking? What's, what's going on in his heart and his mind? Well, I think it's, it's possible that Jesus sees that person through the lens of the garden. He sees them through the lens of the garden. That God, God had created this world that was beautiful and whole and peaceful. And he entered into a relationship with man in which he would have wholeness and communion with him and with each other. And then in the garden, that all crumbled whenever Adam and Eve sinned. And so I think when Jesus looks at people who are poor and needy, he looks at them and says, it's not supposed to be this way. This is not the way I created it. He didn't see a problem. He saw an opportunity for restoration. So what did, what did Peter do after he gazed at this man? He didn't give him money. He healed him. Why did he heal him? Why didn't he just give him the money? Well, Peter says, I don't have any money. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. But what he saw was not just the surface need of money, but he saw the deeper needs that that man had. See, his disability had robbed him not just of money, but of dignity, of relationships, and of joy. Uh, there's a book called When Helping Hurts uh, that our Mercy team uses to train so that they can help the poor and needy among us and the poor and needy in the community. And the people who wrote the book... In their research, they say that when we think about poverty, most of us, we think about material things. We think a lack of, of money, a lack of housing, a lack of resources. But they said that whenever they interviewed people in third world countries that were very, very impoverished, nine out of 10 described their poverty not in material terms, but in relational terms. That their poverty brought shame. Their poverty brought, brought guilt. Their poverty brought uh, lack of relationships into their lives. And so they go on to say that the Bible teaches that we live life in four different relationships. We live life in relationship with God and with creation and with each other and with ourselves. So whenever we experience poverty, when we experience brokenness in any of those relationships, then we're experiencing Poverty. We could say that we're impoverished if our relationship with God is broken or if our relationship with creation or our friends and family members is broken or if our relationship with ourself is broken. See, Peter saw that the deeper need that this man had was not his, uh, necessarily his monetary uh, poverty, but it was his poverty of relationships it was his poverty that, that was brought on by his disability. And so by healing him of his disability, then he brought him to a place where he could have a restored relationship with God and with others. 
So I ask you, what, what do we do when we see the poor and needy among us? Do we look the other way? Or do we fix our gaze on them the way Peter and John did? Do we look at people through the lens of the garden and ask ourselves, how can I meet their deeper needs? How is this situation broken? How can I look at the situation and say, it's not the way it's supposed to be? So what usually happens is that people tend towards a one of two extremes. They either say, okay, I see the needs. I'm going to only meet the physical needs of this person. And so they, they, they simply seek to meet the material needs. Or they go to the other extreme where they say, okay, th- this person has spiritual needs. I'm only going to meet the spiritual needs. But what I think we see consistently throughout Scripture is that God calls us to, to seek to meet both the physical needs and the spiritual needs. Consider uh, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. It says, By this we know love, that he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. God calls us to love people in deed and truth. And so as a church, as a Christian community, we've got to do the hard work, I think, of learning to love people that way. To learning to love people in deed and truth. To, to find a way to, in a, in a responsible, good way, help alleviate their physical needs and their spiritual needs. And develop a community where all those things take place. Uh, John Most is the founder and leader of City of Hope, who we've supported and we've supported for years, and he's a good friend of ours. And so he deal he ministers to the homeless people, like that's what he does. And and he he ministers to their material needs, he ministers to their spiritual needs. He he gives them uh, he helps them find housing and and identification papers and food if they need it. But he also shares the gospel with him. Uh, well, one of our members was talking with him recently. And John said, you know, I'm doing all I can to meet the physical and spiritual needs of these people. But what I'm realizing is if I don't have a church around me to connect these people to, there's only so much I can do. And so he's, he's moving towards starting a homeless church with people there who are strategically placed to help care for these homeless people as he cares for them. Because he, he's realizing that wholeness only comes through community. How can we be a church that loves people in word and deed? We love in part. We, do, we can do it in part by supporting John and helping his ministry. I actually have cards on the entryway for your table out there. There's a City of Hope card. You can take some if you want. We can get more if we need it. But, uh, but what you can do is, is simply use these to establish a relationship with someone who's poor and needy. Next time somebody asks you for a handout, right? You, you, I'll let your conscience be your guide on whether or not you give them the handout, but you could certainly give them this card to City of Hope and say, look, I, I know people who can help you. If you want help, I'll help you find these people. Ask your community group, your friends, your family members, or you can talk with our Mercy team about how you can be a part of creating that kind of community that helps bring wholeness to people in their mind, their bodies, and their souls. 
Now, uh, there may be some of you who are looking at this passage asking, okay, Shane, that's great. What about the healing? The healing is an important part of the passage, and there's lots of questions about that. But I think I, I don't want us to get distracted from what I think is the, uh, the main emphasis that Peter is going to drive us to, which is repentance. But if you have questions about healing, I would love to share my notes with you and talk about that over coffee sometime. But what, what Peter's going to drive us to in, this next, in his sermon after this is not the healing, but through repentance. He's going to show us how we can find wholeness through repentance. So let's look at that in verses 12 through 26. Peter says, and when, the people saw, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. And turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him first to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So what did Peter do after the healing? He did what we see consistently throughout the book of Acts. He preaches the gospel, and he calls people to repentance. We saw this in Acts 2. The, the Holy Spirit falls. There's this miraculous praising of God in other tongues so that the gospel can go forth to all the people. And what does Peter do? He preaches the gospel, and he does it here again. Why? Why does Peter preach the gospel here and call us to repentance? Because he knows that under our physical disabilities— other, under our physical suffering, is a suffering of sin that only repentance and the gospel can heal. Um, he probably saw this modeled in Jesus' ministry. I had Charlie read the uh, Luke 5 passage during the call to worship. If you missed it, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Jesus is preaching and teaching, and he's got a packed house. Right? There's so many people there that when they want to bring in a lame man to see him, they can't. Because there's no room to sit. So the lame man and his friends, they go to the roof. They probably had a grass roof of some type. They, they pull apart the roof and they lower the man down on a mat in front of Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith 
And what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Now, why did Jesus forgive this man's sins? The man didn't even ask for his sins to be forgiven. The man presumably didn't come for his sins to be forgiven. The man came to be healed. But Jesus forgives his sins. Why? Jesus is a good emergency room doctor. And what does a good emergency room doctor do? He treats the most serious illness first. He says the most serious problem you have is your sin problem. Your faith your faith in me, your faith that I am the Messiah who's come to heal, that has, solved you of your, that has cured you of your most serious problem, which is your sin problem. And then after the Pharisees question Jesus, Jesus heals him to show his divine authority. So Peter, even, even though it's in reverse order, I think Peter is doing the same thing here. He, he knows that the crowd's deepest need is the forgiveness of sins. And so he prescribes repentance and faith in Jesus. Now, repentance is one of those churchy words, right? What does repentance mean? Well, I listened to a pastor this week who led a devotional for his family on repentance. And he was trying to help them understand the concept of repentance. So he played a game with them. He said, all right, kids, stand up. So they all stood up. You know, he's a Presbyterian pastor. So he's probably got at least four kids, maybe 10. I don't know. He has all of his kids stand up. He says, okay, every time I say, I want you guys to walk around. And every time I say the word repent, I want you to turn around. And so the kids would start walking around. He'd say, repent. And they would turn around and go the other direction. And they'd start walking the other way. And he'd say, repent. And they would turn around and they'd start walking the other direction. And, and he thought this was kind of nerdy. They thought it was really fun. So they kept doing it. And they kept doing it all over the house. And at the beginning, he was like, okay, this is cute. And then eventually he had to tell his children to stop repenting. <laughs> Imagine the irony. It was getting so noisy. But he was trying to teach them that repentance is a change of direction. When we repent, we see our sin. We see the sinfulness of our sin. We see the, the pain and the destruction it, it brings. And so we turn from our sin, we change direction, we turn, and we embrace Christ, who has paid the penalty for our sins. And we ask him to forgive us, and we go a new direction. We, we live differently. One of the things I like to say is that repentance and faith in Jesus always has an action step. There's always an action step to it, right? There's always a turning in an actionable way, away from sin into the arms of Jesus. So let me ask you this, what, what does it look like for you to change direction? Let's take a, a poor and needy person. How do you look at a poor and needy person? Do you look at them with self-righteousness and pride? What does it look like for you to turn the other direction and to look at them with humility and love? You've got to see that you were spiritually poor when Jesus met your needs. There's nothing that makes you uh, better than that poor person. We've got we've to begin to look at people through the lens of the Garden of Eden the way Jesus did. We, gotta, we begin to love them in word and deed the way the Bible calls us to. Let me ask you, how do you look at your spouse when you're in conflict with them? Do you look at them through the lens of the gospel? Do you ask yourself in that moment, what happened in the fall that caused this conflict between me and my spouse? 
And how can I change direction? How can I look at them differently? How can I treat them differently? Uh, What happens when you're in conflict with your roommate or with your friend? How do you look at them? You'll notice it's hard to look at somebody you're in conflict with, isn't it? It's hard to look them in the eye. It's hard to gaze at them. How can you look at them through the lens of the gospel? How do you look at your brother and your sister whenever you're fighting? Do you look at them and say, this is a, an image bearer, my brother and sister that, that, that God gave to me that's a good gift? Or do you look at them with anger and frustration and hatred? Peter calls us to turn, to repent, to ask ourselves, what, is it, what does it look like for me to love this person the way Jesus has loved me? What does it look like to serve this person the way Jesus has served me? How can I put that into an actionable step? And so when we, when we look at people, or when we won't look at people, and we, we see this sinfulness in our hearts that we look at our friends and family members and community members with, with uh, disdain and self-righteousness and pride, it's in that moment that Jesus wants us to look at him. In that moment, Jesus wants us to, to take our gaze and put it on him. And what do we see on him? We see that he is on the cross. We see that he uh, looked at people not with disdain and self-righteousness and pride, but with compassion and humility and love. He lived a life that we couldn't live. And then he died the death that we should have died. We, we, we gaze at him and we see that it's our, 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 our unloving hearts that put him on the cross. Peter will not let them, he won't let them get away with taking responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus. We saw it in Acts 2. We saw it, we see it in Acts 3. He says, God is sovereign over Jesus and his death, but you crucified him. And so Jesus asks us to gaze at him and see that we crucified him, that it is our unloving hearts that crucified him. And so we gaze at him until we see that, but we also see that he paid the debt for us. We see that he lived the life that we couldn't live, that he died the death that we should have died. And by faith in him, our sins can be forgiven. And we can love this other person the way that he has loved us. And that we can have wholeness in our community because of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. So we gaze at Jesus until we see the beauty of the gospel. And then we gaze at this other person until we see how we can love them the way that Jesus has loved us. And then we put that into an actionable step. I read about a great example of this this week. Uh, There was a church that was praying for revival. And the pastor was preaching for revival. And nothing was happening. And one of the elders stood up in the middle of the service, the sermon, whatever was happening. He stood up in the middle of it and he said, Pastor, this revival is not going to take place until Brother Jones and I bury the hatchet. So he walked over to Brother Jones, whoever that was, and he says, Brother Jones, we haven't spoken in five years. I want to bury the hatchet now. And they forgave each other and they reconciled in the middle of that service. And the Holy Spirit fell on that congregation and a revival broke out in that city because of repentance, because of a restored community. And Peter promises us 
that through repentance, we will experience refreshing. He says uh, that being refreshed means finding relief, right? So as we repent and we believe the gospel, then we find refreshing in our lives. If you're tired, if you're cold, if you're calloused, if you don't feel close to Jesus, if you, if you want to see fruitfulness and flourishing in your life, then Peter says, repent. That's the way to flourishing. Isaiah tells us this. In Isaiah 32, 15, it says, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a force. And all the verses preceding that are all about repentance. That if we repent, then this refreshing comes into our lives. And as refreshing comes to our lives, as we become that kind of whole community, then we become a revival community. And that's the last thing we see here is that after this sermon, revival breaks out. Acts 4, 1 through 4 says, And they were speaking to the people, and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection for the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. We're going to talk about what happened if they were arrested last week. But look at verse 4. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So look, look at the way these 5,000 men responded to the gospel. They believed. They believed that they were sinners in need of God's grace. They believed that they needed God's refreshing in their lives, and so they repented and they received it. Now he says there were 5,000 men. More than likely, that man represented an entire household. So imagine 5,000 households coming into the covenant community that day. How? Because Peter created a restorative community and he preached the gospel of repentance and revival broke out. How's that for a, a church growth strategy, right? Love the poor, preach the gospel, call people to repentance, and God works. That's what brings revival. That's what brings restoration and salvation. Um, it starts with us. It starts with us internalizing the gospel. Uh, I read about a pastor this week who said, if you want to have a revival, go home, lock yourself in a room, kneel down in the middle of your floor, draw a chalk mark around yourself, and ask God to start the revival inside that chalk mark. And when that prayer has been answered, then the revival will take place. Uh, I read another story about a revival that broke out amongst the Welsh people. And it started because they were at a, a, a service, a, a revivalistic, evangelistic service where they were preaching the gospel. And in the middle of that service, a little girl stood up. Kids, it's your time. Little, little, think about this. A little girl stood up. Imagine just a little person standing up in the middle of a service. The little girl stood up and said, timidly, nervously, like you probably would, Oh, I do love Jesus. And then she sat down. And they said the revival was on. The people began coming to Jesus for salvation. And then it spread throughout the church and the town and throughout Wales. God transforms people's lives as he creates a restorative community and a repentant community. It brings refreshing to us and it brings revival to the community. 
If we, if we want to see God change our hearts, it starts with us. It starts with repentance. So let's go to him now. Let's repent. And let's ask him to make that, us that kind of community. Please pray with me.